Hello, and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about elements of the scriptures that help them become more real to us because we believe that helps us draw more power out of them and we need all the help we can get. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein, and I'm very happy uh, and excited to have with us one of my uh, friends and colleagues, uh, Casey Griffiths, and uh, we'll uh, introduce Casey in just a second, but uh, thank you for being with us, Casey. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, first of all, I just want to remind uh, my audience that uh, we've been asked to find ways to help everyone share insights and uh, to have some interaction and feedback. So uh, I'd love for you to make comments if you're on a platform that has comments. But uh, if if uh, not, please email us at the scriptures are real at gmail.com and we'll put it on or you can uh, join some of the discussion boards we created at uh, SAR. That's the scriptures real T-S-A-R dot website. Uh, and we just love to hear your insights, the things you're gaining as you study the scriptures and make this a more interactive experience. And I'll also just remind everybody that uh, Google Podcast is ending. So if that's the platform you're listening on by the beginning of March, you'll need to choose another platform to, to listen on. So we just want to make you aware of a few events, and, and one of them is a correction. Uh, but we have some things that we're really excited about doing. Um, we're going to to do a Book of Mormon workshop, and I announced before that that would be on March 1st and 2nd, but we've realized that that's the same weekend as Roots Tech, and we don't want to interfere with Roots Tech, so we're going to do it the week before. It will be the evening of March 23rd and like two-thirds of the day of March 24th, So I mean February 23rd and February 24th, so that's a Friday and a Saturday, uh, the, the kind of the late afternoon, evening on the 23rd uh and uh morning uh, and into late afternoon of the 24th um and uh you can go to patreon.com slash enlighten edge edu or sar tsar dot website and you'll be able to see a way to register for those and the prices for those we're also going to do um a live and and the all of the proceeds by the way are going towards helping to support the podcast and and uh, some other fundraising events we're trying to create a studio that not only we could use but other people could use we found a number of people who want to produce good things for the latter-day saints but they don't have a good recording uh thing so we're we're trying to raise money for that and for the the podcast and so on uh we're also going to do and and some of that workshop will focus on uh, the chapters that we will just be doing right then, which will be uh, we're coming up on the Isaiah chapters, uh, but also we've got great things coming up after that. Jacob, fantastic teachings in Jacob and Jerem and so on. So a lot of wonderful things that we'll we'll focus on while we're in there. Um, we're also going to do a live Isaiah event. So this will uh, for the workshop, there will be both a Zoom component and an in-person component. We'll focus on the in-person, but there there will be a uh, Zoom component. We're going to do a just a broadcast, a live uh, Isaiah uh, broadcast where we'll talk about how to get the most out of Isaiah uh, in the Book of Mormon on Tuesday, February 20th at 7 p.m. You can also go to Patreon, uh, those same websites, and we'll put links in the show notes um, for that. Um, and so you can register for that, and uh, and we'll have a chance where I'll, I'll present some things and then people can ask some questions. So those are two big things coming up. We're gonna we're also putting together a, a cool workshop. We'll have to announce a lot more about this. This will be in Missouri uh, where we're going to to travel around to some of the sites in Missouri and we'll have uh, also a place where we're doing lectures and do a real workshop. It won't be just me. We're gonna ask Alex Baugh, who is the greatest scholar uh, alive on the church in Missouri. 
and uh, we're going to do that together. So we'll get you more information about that. But for now, know that Tuesday the 20th at 7 p.m., there'll be a live Isaiah event. And then that weekend, there'll be the Book of Mormon workshop. So with all that, let me just tell you all a little bit about uh, Casey. So Casey is in the the other department in my college, the, the Department of Church History and Doctrine, um, where he is uh, he, he focuses on um, – uh, well, he teaches a lot of the, our history courses, and he has a great podcast of his own that I'm going to ask him to tell you a little bit about. Um, he has uh, a BA in history from BYU and then his MA in religious education and PhD in uh, educational leadership uh, from BYU. Um, and he focuses on uh, different elements of the history of the church. So, And, and he also has a, a wife and, and uh, three children, and uh, that's the most important part. But that's just a very brief introduction. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about you, Casey, and then tell us about your your own podcast? Yeah, I need to update my bio because we actually have four children. Oh, and so <laughs> look at that. I I've all these years thought you had three because I read that once. So, well, huh. the bio actually says he lives in Saratoga Springs with his wife and their three adorable children. So we get around it by saying one of them just isn't adorable. <laughs> there you go. Uh, but there are in it's fact too four. bad one of them's not. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I apologize. I, I, this is the umpteenth time that's happened, so don't feel guilty. It's actually my fault. I need to get in there and update my bio because our youngest is five years old now. Yeah, he's going to um, come but, back to haunt you on that one. By the way, like that, thanks a lot for caring about me, Dad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, I, I, I'm feeling guilty right now as a father. You should. Um, yeah, uh, I, um, I teach in the other department in religious education. That's church history, and we still doctrine. like you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I am thrilled to be here because uh, I worked in seminaries and institutes for over a decade. I was a curriculum writer. Uh, but when you come to BYU, you have to specialize to a certain degree. And that means that I mostly teach church history. Um, and I don't get to teach a Book of Mormon class, which I, mm. I hope that changes someday. But these particular chapters that we're doing today, First Nephi 1 and 2, actually, I do teach quite a bit. Um, and that's because the other class that I teach is called the Eternal Family. It's based around the family proclamation. And I don't think that outside of uh, the chapters that actually describe the fall, there's a better chapter doctrinally about the fall than Second Nephi 2. So I never teach the fall, which is part of what we teach in the Eternal Family Course, because we're getting people ready to go to the temple uh, without spending a lot of time in Second Nephi 2, because there is some profound, profound material here. I, I agree. Um, right. I, in fact, I'll just say when I was at BYU Hawaii and we didn't have two different departments. So then I taught a course on the family and I made sure we spent time on the fall and we did second Nephi two. And I have to teach right now a lot of courses where like Pearl of Great Price, uh, Old Testament, where we talk about the fall and we always read second Nephi two. I think it's it's one of those foundational texts for a Latter-day Saint understanding of the fall. No, oh, yeah. It just opens up so many new avenues of understanding when it comes to the fall total game changer as to the purpose, the nature, and why the fall matters. So um, I'm excited uh, to to get into it. But first, you wanted me to talk a little bit about my podcast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, my podcast is done through Scripture Central. It's with a BYU-Idaho professor named Scott Woodward, and it's called Church History Matters. And uh, it's not a Come Follow Me podcast where we're doing kind of a block uh, of the week. It's, it's based around topics in church history. So we do series 
where we'll tackle a really tough issue like plural marriage or race in the priesthood. We did six episodes on race in the priesthood. Um, typically, we'll we'll go through the entire history of the issue, and then in the last episode, we'll bring in an expert and do a little question and response. Um, in fact, Carrie, you were our expert um, when we did uh, Revelations and Translation. So we we talked about the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. Then we talked about the Book of Abraham, and then you were our you were our closer, I guess you'd say. Yeah. Uh, because you know more about the book of Abraham than anybody that I know. So thank you for helping out with our podcast. I'm happy that I can be here and and can return the favor. Yeah, and and it's all good fun. Yeah, and and one quick thing, the podcast is linked to a site called Doctrine and Covenants Central that has a bunch of resources on church history and the Doctrine and Covenants. So next year when we get to the Doctrine and Covenants, I hope everybody'll remember that and take advantage because we've been spending a lot of time trying to beef up the resources that are there to help you understand the Doctrine and Covenants. Oh, great. Uh, Scripture Central has been doing fantastic stuff. And uh, yeah, they've got Pearl of Great Price Central, Doctrine and Covenants Central, Book of Mormon Center. It's just, uh, uh, they produce a lot of wonderful things. Yeah. And they're very, very nice people and very, very sincere. And they've been really, really good to us. So I'm grateful to have that platform and uh, proud to work with them. They're they're good folks. Yeah, agree. Well, all right. So thank you for that and for all the good things that you're doing. And uh, now we just love to to jump in. You know, we, we like to do our deep dives here. And uh, I mean, you could do this a whole bunch of different ways. We could probably spend like choose three verses and, and spend an hour on those. But uh, that might get to the point of ridiculousness. I don't know, but maybe not. So we'll, we'll just do it the way you'd like to do it, Casey. So uh, why don't you take us uh, in these wonderful chapters? Why don't you take us where you'd like to go? Yeah, so this is the opening of uh, Second Nephi, which Second Nephi, oh my word, what a profound collection of doctrinal discourses. But this is Lehi at his best. And, um, you know, Carrie, just this week in my church history classes, we talked about the lost manuscript of the Book of Mormon. And pretty much all we know from that lost manuscript was that it was called the Book of Lehi and that it was an abridgment of Lehi's time. And now I have fear of missing out based on these chapters because we we don't get a lot of opportunities um, in because Nephi's writing the record and he's assuming that Lehi has his own record to hear Lehi actually teach. It seems like Lehi's dream is the biggest opportunity you have before this. And then scattered excerpts where he talks about the mission of Christ right after he relates his dream or when he's exhorting his sons. And these chapters here, especially 2 Nephi 2, really show uh, what a profound thinker and teacher Lehi was. And it opens up a couple things about uh, key events like the atonement and the fall uh, that make us think that either Lehi received this by revelation or he's taking it from the brass plates. And there's some good stuff. But it does open with uh, with Lehi doing what he's most known for, which is trying to stop his sons from <laughs> uh, yeah. going off the rails. So uh, Nephi's writing this, but in context, uh, Lehi is is kind of giving his his last lecture. He's on his deathbed and He's going to sit down and speak to his sons and give them one final word of exhortation. And I should note that uh, in the original manuscripts of the Book of Mormon, what you see here in First and Second Nephi is all one chapter. Um, we we divided it into two because 
Orson Pratt came along and kind of split up the discourse into Second Nephi 2, where he's clearly speaking to his son Jacob, and then Second Nephi 3, where he's speaking to his son Joseph. But First Nephi, Second Nephi 1 and Second Nephi 2 have this interesting kind of let's look backward on what's happened, and then let's have a new start here. So it feels like Second Nephi 1 is him, him addressing the feud that has been brewing between yeah. uh, Laban and Lemuel and, and the people aligned with them, and Nephi and Sam and the people aligned with them. And then in Second Nephi 2, he sits down with Jacob and kind of says, and it doesn't have to be this way. Um, yeah. what, what has happened to them isn't inevitable. You can choose to not do what they did. Not saying that Nephi did anything wrong necessarily, but he kind of wants Jacob to know you can have a fresh start if you want to, because Second Nephi 2 is all about how you have choice, how you have power, how you're not locked into past decisions, and that you're free to act for yourself and do something different and not follow the paths that your older brothers may have followed. Uh, Very good. And it is clear. I mean, I mean, I can't agree with you more. Like, he can sense this is a, about to boil and probably will boil over when I die, and it does. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's also clear in Second Nephi two that he's addressing Jacob specifically. But by the end, he just keeps saying, "My sons, my mm-hmm. sons." Right. So I, I, he, I think you're right. He's trying to give Jacob this opportunity to do things differently. But I think he's hoping that by addressing Jacob, that they'll all learn this same thing, and that all of them have a chance to to choose differently than what it may feel like they're locked into. Yeah. And it feels like chapter one is kind of a warning. Here's the consequences of your actions. Here's what will happen if you make certain choices. But then second Nephi two is much more philosophical. It's much more kind of, here's the components of choice and how God grants us agency and how if you live according to God's commandments, it might initially seem like you're being restricted, but actually what God is aiming for is to give you more agency. He wants you to have the power to be free to choose for yourself and act, and commandments are intended to do that. They're intended to make you more free, uh, even if initially we sometimes feel like they're a little bit restrictive. Yeah, and I think that's that's Satan's ploy, right? He wants you to feel like they are doing the opposite of what they're actually doing. Yeah, they're, they're telling me how to live my life, when in reality, uh, commandments do tell you how to live your life, but they do so in such a way that if you live them, your life becomes easier, it yeah. becomes more fulfilling, and you actually have more freedom to do and experience more things. Yeah, yeah, they tell you how to obey principles, immutable principles that will give you freedom in life. Yeah. So uh, you're you're absolutely right that uh, this this takes place when they're in the land of promise. Um, Lehi kind of introduces the the covenant that will mm-hmm. set the stage for the rest of the Book of Mormon. Uh, so I want to read a little bit from the record, First Nephi chapter one verse six, or Second um, Nephi one, right? Sorry, I keep saying First Nephi. Care yeah. you're going to have to correct me. My I'm, my brain is a little bit fried. Uh, um, my students have to do it for me all the time in class, uh, and I made fun of my teachers when they were doing it, not not out loud, but in my head. And now I do it all the time. So well, that's 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 the cycle of life, I guess. That that's the cycle as we all uh, go closer to where Lehi is, yeah. on, laying on our deathbed. So. Um, okay, let's let's go 2 Nephi 1.6, Wherefore I, Lehi, 
prophesy according to the workings of the Spirit which is in me, that there shall none come into this land, save they shall be brought by the hand of the Lord. Wherefore, this land is consecrated unto him whom he shall bring. And if it so be that they shall serve him according to the commandments which he hath given, it shall be a land of liberty unto them. Wherefore, they shall never be brought down into captivity. If so, it shall be because iniquity. For if iniquity shall abound, cursed be the land for their sakes, but unto the righteous shall it be blessed forever. So this, um, and you would know about this, Carrie, it reminds me a lot of the uh, covenant God makes with Abraham. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah, I, I've written on that. Yeah, yeah, that that, <laughs> you, you know, that you those know two are exactly that. the the same covenant. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and the the covenant is I've given you this land. Um, the Book of Mormon doesn't exactly specify what the land is to the degree of specificity that the Abrahamic covenant does. Right. Um, and that's why some people assume: well, is this the whole Western Hemisphere? Is this all of North and South America? Is this a land? Within North and South America, we just don't. Is it know. Puerto Rico? I don't. Is it Puerto yeah. Rico? Is it the Malay Peninsula? Yeah. Um, yeah, we just don't know. But the conditions of the covenant are clear, and I would say that even though this is a special covenant God made with His children, in some ways it's a broader covenant that God makes with everybody, everywhere. It's the whole simple dichotomy of if you if you follow my commandments, you'll be blessed. If you fail to follow my commandments, you'll you'll be humbled you'll have to uh you'll have to deal with it adversity otherwise uh these promises will stand and you'll be able to prosper because of it so whether or not there's a land attached to it the the covenant is the same do what i say and i'll bless you if you don't do what i say you won't receive the blessings of the covenant you very good so he he addresses the land of promise, verse 9, I, Lehi, have obtained a promise, inasmuch as those whom the Lord God shall bring out of the land of Jerusalem shall keep his commandments, they shall prosper upon the face of this land. But he also recognizes, and I'm guessing by this point he's had conversations with Nephi, and he's talked about Nephi's vision of the tree of life, which outlines the entire uh, structure of the Book of Mormon, and, yeah. and that... I actually kind of suspect that Lehi had seen the same thing. I we, I we don't know, but I suspect he'd seen it as well. But anyway, sorry, keep going. That's what I wonder too. If, if what we have of Lehi's vision in 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 First Nephi eight is the cliff notes, right? Yeah. And well, then... I mean, in in First Nephi ten, it's clear that he's seen a whole bunch about the scattering and gathering of Israel. That's so in, in that vision, so the, what happens with the Nephites seems to me to be part of the scattering and gathering. So I'm I just kind of think so, but yeah, we'll have to wait till we get those 116 pages back to find out. <laughs> well, and you can see weighing on him kind of this um, existential angst that comes from knowing that things aren't going to work out great, but that's not the point. The point is to save as many as you can along the way, right? We all know, for instance, today that we're headed towards a period of time, a time and period of trouble that the, the second coming is going to have good things and bad things going to be great and terrible. But our objective is to save as many as we can along the way. We we know we're headed towards something. And Lehi's got a personal stake in this because this is his family that he's talking about, his yeah. descendants. And so he does sort of have this specter hanging over from him. But like any good parent or teacher, even though he's sort of seen the end of the story, he doesn't give up. He's not willing to just say, well, I've seen it. 
I know what's going to happen. Instead, he's talking to them. Verse 14, awake and arise from the dust and hear the words of a trembling parent whose limbs must soon lay down in the cold and silent grave and from whence no traveler can return a few more days and I go the way of all the earth. But behold, the Lord hath redeemed my soul from hell. So I'm going to die, but I know that I'm going to be okay. In fact, he even uses this beautiful phrase. And this is where, man, like I know Nephi is writing this, but if he's taking Lehi's words directly, Lehi was a poet too. Like he says, yeah. I beheld his glory and I'm encircled about eternally in the arms of his love. Just beautiful. And that uh, phrase other writing. Book of Mormon writers will pick up on because it is so beautiful, right? They're just going to use phrases from Lehi a lot because Lehi is powerful. I, I wish we had more from Lehi. It's so powerful. Yeah. I, going back to that, uh, I I think he just got the the short end of the shrift here because what we get here is so profound. Um, I wish we had more from him. Uh, but again, he also goes out of his way to address every member of the family. You go down further, Laman, Lemuel, Sam. He addresses the sons of Ishmael. He even takes time to address Zoram in verse 30. Uh, Zoram is part of the family at this point, and he notes that Zoram's a pretty good guy and kind of sets up these, these groups that will inhabit the land of promise. But you could encapsulate pretty much everything he says in verse 20. Inasmuch as ye shall keep my commandments, ye shall prosper in the land. Inasmuch as ye will not keep my commandments, ye shall be cut off from my presence. So there's your choices. Yeah, and that that is the Nephite shortened version of the Abrahamic covenant, right? It's it's yeah. their it's their catchphrase for the Abrahamic covenant. Yeah, and I think it's fair to say, like this covenant's repeated with Abraham. Um, this covenant's repeated in the Doctrine and Covenants. It's the same covenant that we live under now, and that everybody yeah. lives under. Uh, with yeah. slight provision. It's the same covenant that the person makes typically when they go to the temple too, is yeah. here's the commandments, keep the commandments, you'll prosper. If you don't, you won't. So Amen. he's setting the stakes for the rest of the book. And then let's go to Second Nephi chapter two. All right. Maybe before we go there, maybe I'll just add one other thing, because I, I, I like what you're kind of, uh, you've said this idea that he's still trying to reach Laman and Lemuel, even though he has yeah. seen and vision how at least some of these things go. So he must know there's going to be a division because I think he has seen that there are Lamanites and Nephites, maybe not, or maybe he's heard from Nephi, but he must know there's going to be some kind of a vision. But, um, you know, you said he's he's seen the end of the story, but I, I think maybe we could rephrase this to say he has seen an end to the story, mm -hmm. but he also must know that's not the end, right? He, he has to believe that there are still chances even after they die for Laman and Lemuel. Uh, that and for their descendants, especially because they have what the opportunities they do or don't get because of what they have or haven't been taught, right? And so, I think he's trying to teach beyond his grave by having these things written down, he's trying to teach beyond their grave, uh, hoping that maybe these things will uh, reach them at some point. He's trying to teach, uh, you know, that his great 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 grandchildren and so on. I, I, I think you're right, he's he's a parent who is not going to give up. He's going to keep teaching with the hope that somewhere along the lines, these things work out. Yeah. And I'll, I'll just say this, you know, as someone that teaches family classes, um, boy, is this a model of good parenting, right? Yeah. Especially the parents out there that might have troubled children. Uh, oh, see... I think you just said all parents. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> not. But, uh... I'll, not my kids. My kids are perfect. Oh, there but, you go. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mine too. So all, all parents besides the two of us, right? Yeah. 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 
that that you know you you invite and you encourage and you teach 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 and you never really give up and and like we yeah. said we're 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 guessing here that he knows the end of the story but or and hasn't given yeah. up on them yeah and and i i like your point carrie too that he's saying hey even even death isn't going to stop me uh, from doing what i can to try and help you come back and know this. And that's the part of the story of Laman and Lemuel that we don't really know is what happened to them after they died. Yeah. I have hope for them. I, I, I do too, you know, Um, especially this time as I've been reading through the Book of Mormon with my family, uh, I've noted that, you know what, they have their ups and downs and mostly downs, but there's a few ups in there. And what they've been asked to do is especially challenging you know, since the last time I read the Book of Mormon, I had a chance to go to the Holy Land and travel through some of the countryside that they would have traveled through. And it's kind of helped me understand, boy, this was a big ask of Lehi. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to leave uh, to leave Jerusalem and go into the wilderness by the Red Sea, which is not a pleasant place. And then to make the leap of traveling across the sea to the Americas. Um, I'm, I'm sympathetic towards them. And maybe that's... Mm. Me reflecting on the Book of Mormon as a parent when I was a kid, I was like, Laman and Lemuel are idiots. Uh, <laughs> now as a parent, I'm like, they're good boys, you know? They just they just yeah. keep going in the wrong direction. I, I'm, I'm, I'm the exact same way. I, I think of them differently now than I used to. <laughs> and that comes from being an, an, old, an old dad, right, as you yeah. go through this. Well, um, like I said, I kind of want to spend most of my time on on chapter two. And uh, right. speaking to his son, Jacob, Jacob's born during the Exodus from Jerusalem, along with another son, Joseph, who's going to be addressed in chapter three. And Jacob, I mean, verse one, now, Jacob, I speak unto you, thou art my firstborn in the, in the days of tribulation in the wilderness. And behold, in thy childhood, thou hast suffered afflictions and much sorrow because of the rudeness of thy brethren. So he's... He's actually saying, hey, I know, Jacob, that you have kind of borne the brunt of the the fallout between what happens with your brothers. And so I'm going to take a little bit of time and speak to you. And I think I think Lehi loves all of his children equally. And I, no. Nephi's writing this. Nephi probably saw this and said, this is core doctrinal stuff. I'm going to include this. But it 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 is kind of good parenting too here where he sits down with one of his kids who's had a really hard time yeah. and said, let me teach you the doctrine. And this is a pattern you see in the book of Mormon, right? Alma yeah. spends more time with his troubled children than his untroubled children. It's like yeah. Elam and Shiblon, you're doing great. Coriantumer, let's talk. And then he <laughs> share some of the most chat. profound stuff. Jacob doesn't appear to be particularly troubled, but he does appear to be really tender hearted. Yeah. And you see that later on in the book when Jacob becomes the prophet and in texts like Jacob 1 and 2, yeah. where he has to address, uh, he is so, he, he spends practically half of his discourse apologizing for what he's about to say yeah. and then brings the hammer down. But I, I have to tell you this. So um, all of that personality, and, I think, is informed here by the way Lehi talks to this sensitive child. Yeah. I he's agree. Explain what he's been through. I think sometimes we don't think through. I mean, uh, you think of, uh, you know, all, all the studies that suggest like things that happen to children, the trauma children experience when they see often it's it's a contention between their parents. But if it's between 
siblings and parents or something like that. If a young child is constantly seeing that in their home, it, it that's that's actually some pretty powerful trauma that has an effect on children. Yeah. And Jacob, as a young boy, is seeing two of his oldest brothers trying to kill some of his other older brothers, even thinking about killing his parents. He's seen a ship almost, you know, they're all going to be destroyed while his older brother's tied up because of this. Like he's seen real contention in his family as a child that it's probably pretty hard to process. And, he, and, and at one point, it seems like he must be sitting there saying, I think my mom and dad are going to die on this boat because it says that they were close to dying. Mm -hmm. um, I think my brother Nephi is going to die on this boat uh, because my other brother, that's tough stuff that, that he has had to wade through. And Lehi seems to be very, very aware of that. And he's addressing it head on. Yeah. And I mean, he's also, I think, trying to prepare Jacob because Lehi seems to be aware that his death might be the thing that finally severs the family. Yeah. Uh, and so he's trying to prepare Jacob, even though they've they've made it through the rough part of their journey, and they're in the land of promise now to prepare him for what before. So, this this discourse really kind of is a great why do bad things happen to good people? <laughs> yeah, um, discourse, um, and one of the most profound ones that's there. But it seems like um, the answer that Lehi is trying to provide to Jacob as to why bad things happen to good people is agency. Uh, that agency is a power God gives us to act for ourselves. And unfortunately, some people misuse their agency. But a central tenet that he's trying to express here is if there wasn't evil in the world, there wouldn't be good. Uh, yeah. That there have to be these opposing forces in order for us to really experience fully what life is like. Yeah. And appended to that very, very, very much. I mean, and I, again, I'll say like this may be the most philosophically deep sermon in the Book of Mormon. Oh, yeah. And you just think, man, Leah, I wish we heard more from you. But um, but appended to uh, that, if there's no evil, there's no good. There's this couplet that we'll see if there's no misery, there's no joy. Yeah. And where he's addressing a child who has experienced this misery, I think he is helping. Like I agree with you so much like it's about fall and agency. But attach to that our misery, but no, Jacob, because of the misery, there's the joy, right? And I'm sure we're going to explore that more, but I think that that's, that's part of the knowing good from evil is uh, and understanding why this is being addressed to Jacob. Uh, I think that's part of understanding that. Now, you're absolutely right. And in a, in a good discourse where you're trying to help somebody understand why suffering exists, um, you start at the same place. Uh, Lehi starts, right? Which is introducing um, the solution to suffering and the way that we overcome it, which is Jesus Christ. So starting in verse three, he says, I know, I know thou art redeemed, uh, Jacob, because of the righteousness of thy redeemer. Thou hast beheld that in the fullness of time he cometh to bring salvation unto men. And thou hast beheld in thy youth his glory. Wherefore thou art blessed, even as they unto whom he shall minister in the flesh. For the spirit is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the way is prepared from the fall of man and salvation is free. So let's start at point one. Uh, there is a redeemer and what you're about to experience is not going to be pleasant, but I do want you to know that there is a figure, there is a person, there's a purpose behind what you're going to go through and your suffering is not going to be wasted. No. Um, and fact, it's not going to be endless. Yeah, it's not going to be endless. In fact, let me jump down a couple of verses, then we'll back up. 
Redemption, this is verse 6, cometh in and through the Holy Messiah, for he is full of grace and truth. Behold, he offereth himself a sacrifice for sin to answer the ends of the law unto all those who have a broken heart and contrite spirit, and unto none else can the ends of the law be answered. Wherefore, how great the importance to make these things known unto the inhabitants of the earth, that they may know there is no flesh that can dwell in the presence of God, save it be through the merits, mercy, and grace of the Holy Messiah, who layeth down his life according to the flesh, and taketh it again by the power of the Spirit, that he may bring to pass the resurrection of the dead, being the first that should rise. So, Jacob, before I talk to you about why life can sometimes be complex, let me give you hope. Yeah. And and a lot of times, uh, Carrie, in our discourse, um, we spend our time in the mud, sorry, without looking up at the sky. Yeah. Um, Lehi does it right, where he starts his discourse on adversity by saying, it's going to be okay. And here's the reason why it's going to be okay. And who? this is the person that you should look to to get you through these trials that you're going to experience. Yeah. In fact, maybe I would put it this way. I think in this case, he's actually talking about the real end of the story. Yeah. Right? yeah. He's saying, this is how it ends. I know that this ends well for you. I know that there's someone who makes it so it ends well for you. So as we go through the tough stuff, this is how it ends. It kind of reminds me of uh, a, a couple of people said this uh, about President Hinckley in a couple of ways. Like uh, one person asked, I think it was uh, uh, Mike Wallace with the 60 minute interview, but it's some someone like that who asked, uh, I think they asked President Munson, like, how can he be so upbeat and optimistic? And President Munson said, well, he knows how it ends. Um, <laughs> and And I was just reading President Nelson saying the same thing about President Hinckley and why he was so optimistic, because he knew how this story ends, right? If we know how it ends, then we're going to be okay, right? So I, I can remember when my children were little and we'd watch something like maybe The Little Mermaid and you get to the tense part and, and it's too much for them as little children. And so I just stop and say, don't worry, Ariel's yeah. going to be okay. I know how this story ends and Ariel's going to be okay. Then they can get through that tense part. And I think you're right. That's what he's doing right here. He's saying, don't worry. I know about Jesus this is going to work out okay for you. It's all going to be okay. And I mean, like I said, what, one of the classes I teach and where I use this text is family. Um, and we've gotten very good, and this is really positive, I want to be clear, in the last couple of years about expressing empathy towards people that are dealing with hard things. Like yeah. we, we've, we, we're doing so much better as a church. Maybe I'm wrong, but we're I doing think so, so much better as a church sitting down with people and instead of saying, um, don't Buck worry up. about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sitting down and saying, I know that this hurts. I know that this is really tough. But sometimes um when we express empathy, we don't teach hope. Mm. Uh, we just kind of end it at the I understand what you're going through, or I feel terrible about this, and we don't say it's gonna be okay, and here's the reason why, or here's the reason how. Yeah. A lot of times when people are involved in complexity, um, we don't point them to the source of simplicity and hope, which is to just to say there's a redeemer and we believe that life and by life, we mean the whole thing, pre-mortality, mortality, post-mortality is fair. Yeah. That, that Christ's sacrifice makes it fair. Yeah. And we don't want to trivialize the thing they're going through at the moment, right? Mm -hmm. Like if, if someone just lost a child, you don't want to trivialize and say, eh, you don't need to feel bad, right? No, they're going to feel bad, but they do need to know the hope yeah. as you're saying. 
Yeah, it's that whole conundrum where, you know, President Packer came and gave a devotional at BYU. And I remember him saying very specifically, never teach a fun never teach at a funeral without teaching the plan of salvation. Yeah. Me so too. get up and you can talk about the individual, but it's your obligation too to provide the family, the people that are in mourning, and yourself if you're in mourning, with the hope to know that there is a happy ending to this, that it's going to be okay. Yeah. So with the, with that as the center part of the discourse, I'm I'm going to quote here for just a second from a talk I heard um, Paul Johnson give once. Paul Johnson's a mm. member of the 70, great scriptorian, uh, and he used 2 Nephi 2 as a way of explaining agency. So mm -hmm. he goes through what Lehi says here, and I'll just walk you through each of those, but here's the big picture, 30,000 view, 30,000 foot view. It says, we learn from the scriptures there are several things necessary to make agency operative. Eternal law, opposition or opposites, including enticement to the good and the evil, a knowledge of good and evil, sometimes referred to as the knowledge of good from evil, and the freedom or ability to choose. Without each of these elements, agency, and the accompanying personal accountability for our choices would not function. So Elder Johnson says, hey, in order for agency, as we understand it, to exist, we've got to have four things. We've got to have eternal law, opposition or opposites, sometimes expressed as just good and evil, a knowledge of good from evil, and the power to choose. And Lehi, at a certain point in each one of these um, discourses, touches on this. And like you said, um, Carrie, he, he's talking to Jacob, but then as the discourse progresses, he's basically saying to all of his kids, you're not locked into anything, okay? Um, just because Nephi, you've seen in vision what's going to happen, doesn't mean that you don't have the power to act or to choose for yourself. Yeah. So, for instance, uh, Elder Johnson says, um, you have to have law. Go to verse 5. Um, men are instructed sufficiently that they know good from evil, and the law is given unto men. And by the law, no flesh is justified, or by the law, men are cut off. Yea, by the temporal law, they were cut off, and also by the spiritual law, they perish from that which is good and become miserable forever. So, introducing the first thing required for agency, in order for agency to exist, there have to be laws that define what's good and what's evil. And he brings up a big challenge we have with the law, which is none of us are living the law sufficiently to be justified, but that's where the discourse on the Savior comes in. He says, right. all right, if, if you're saved, it's going to be through the merits and mercy of Jesus Christ. He'll overcome the law for you. So recognize there is a law and... You're not going to be able to live the law sufficiently, but that's why there's a Messiah. He's going to help you negotiate the law. Yeah, and as he's doing this, he's he's talking about like these principles, right? And it's it's centering around. And sometimes he does he's not super explicit about it, but he assumes that we understand what I think is one of the most important principles and the underlying governing principle of the covenant, which as we've said he's bringing into this, and that is that we want to be with God. We want yeah. to have a connection and a, a relationship with God. The whole point of the plan of salvation is that we we lose some of our relationship with him so that we can gain a higher relationship with him. But the point here is that if we're just left up to the law, that, that severance is mm -hmm. permanent. There is no future relationship with God if, we're, if it's all left up to the law, no matter how hard you try, no matter how good you are, no how much food storage and doing ministry and visits and whatever else it is, 
your severance from God is permanent forevermore if all we have is the law, and that's why we need that Messiah. Right? Yeah. And now we're getting into Lehi's philosophy, right? Where, <laughs> you know, if we're if we're talking philosophically and the law condemns everybody, you know, your first impulse might be to say, that sounds like a pretty harsh law. Why doesn't he just change the law or lower his standards or get rid of the law? Uh, Lehi addresses that too. So yeah. verse 13, yeah. he says this, if you shall say there is no law, you shall also say there is no sin. And if you say there's no sin... There's no righteousness. And if there be no righteousness, there can be no happiness. And if there be no righteousness or happiness, there can be no punishment or misery. And if these things are not, there is no God. If there's no God, we are not, neither the earth, for there could have been no creation of things, neither to act or to be acted upon. Wherefore, all these things must have vanished away. So philosophically, um, saying there's no law sounds great. But in practice, it would be a huge disaster, right? It's kind of like how everybody thinks they're a superior driver. And so when you get out on the freeway, you're like, I can go faster than the speed limit. and I don't need to signal because I'm the best. But if I said, okay, let's get rid of all laws, all of a sudden what happens? Total chaos. <laughs> Some of the countries have driven in. No, no, uh, just joking. But, um, <laughs> uh, Florida, you're right, absolute chaos. Florida, where, where <laughs> I serve my mission. They act like there's no law out there and... You can kind of see immediately, um, yeah. I'm glad there are laws. Laws ultimately are designed to protect us. And the way Lehi defines law is basically is something that defines righteousness from sin and then makes the connection that righteousness consists of things that lead us to happiness and sin consists of things that lead us away from happiness in the long term. Sin can be very fun short term, I guess I'll say. Uh, but in the long run, righteousness is stuff that makes you happy eternally. Sin is stuff that makes you unhappy eternally. So all law is, is God's way of saying, this will make you happy. This won't make you happy. If we don't have that, we can't measure what's good and what's not good. Uh, that's so profound. In fact, maybe, and I wasn't planning on doing this, but maybe we can just uh, jump to another place in scripture. And I'm sure I'll talk about this when we get there, but it's long enough away. People won't remember anyway, of course, uh, right but that I think really helps us understand this. So if we were to go to Alma chapter 41, and there's a verse that we often read in conjunction with this, but we kind of forget the next verse that I think even explains it better. Mm -hmm. So if we go to Alma chapter 41, so here we are, another parent talking this time to the wayward son. But uh, anyway, <clears throat> verse 10, do not suppose because it has been spoken concerning restoration that ye shall be restored from sin to happiness. Behold, I say unto you, wickedness never was happiness. Okay, that's true. We get that. But look at this next part. And now, my son, all men that are in a state of nature, so that's the fallen state, we could say, <clears throat> that are in a state of nature, or I would say in a carnal state, so that's fallen state, are in the gall of bitterness and in the bonds of iniquity. They are without God in the world, and they have gone contrary to the nature of God. Therefore, they are in a state contrary to the nature of happiness. Now, we can then logically say, well, the converse of that is true. That means that being in a state congruent with the nature of God is congruent with the nature of happiness, right? Mm -hmm. So this brings us back to that thing where we want to become like God so we can have that relationship with God, that, that, that all of that is designed to get us to be the kinds of beings that can have happiness. So the laws are really just the expressions of the, the, the principle uh, of there's a certain way of being that is congruent with happiness and anything other than that is congruent with unhappiness or misery. And, and so you, we could, we could say, well, let's 
change the law, but you can't change the fact that there that God's nature and that way of being is equal to happiness. That can't be changed. So the laws are only a reflection of that, and that's why they're tied to happiness and misery and sin and so on in the way they are in in Second Nephi two because of this notion that there is one way of being that is congruent with happiness. Mm-hmm. Well said. Well said. That yeah. It's basically law is here's what works and here's what doesn't work. (laughs) It can all be boiled down to that. And God is the master of all law in the universe. He does what works. So he's trying to help us as we navigate our way through this process, figure that out too. So you got law introduced that that's one of the things Elder Johnson says is necessary. Then he says, you have to have a knowledge of good and evil. In the next verse, he says, my sons, I speak unto you these things for your profit and learning. There is a God. He created all things, both the heaven and the earth, and all things that are in them, both things to act and things to be acted upon. Mm -hmm. So he's basically saying, hey, if you know the law and you understand it, and that's why I'm teaching you right now, you could be something that acts rather than something that is acted upon, which is a a beautiful scriptural way of saying, I'm trying to give you more agency. If you understand how the universe works, you're going to be able to use it. Just like if you understand how a car works, you can travel vast distances. If you don't, you have a car and that provides temporary shelter, but you can't really do very much with it. So this is the instruction manual of the universe essentially here. Oh, that's so good. And and this is a principle I think Elder Bednar uh, has picked up on that I see influence like most of the things he teaches somewhere in there. He'll have something about acting and not being acted upon. And in one way or another, he'll talk about that. But this notion that, yeah, we if, if we're obedient, we get to act. And if not, we're acted upon by the consequences of our choices. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, partially, I think Elder Bednar just gave a great devotional in BYU on this. Um, yeah, yeah. And he, he brought it in again. Everybody go read. Uh, but partially, it's because... There, There is sort of a tendency, at least in the last little while, the way we talk about ourselves, to just basically say, that's how I am. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, this I is do, me. This is me. I can't do anything about the way that I am. And Lehi saying, no, that's you being acted upon. That's yeah. not you acting. Yeah. Um, this is me. And, and it is important that a person learns to love and accept themselves. Yeah. But they do need to kind of have this desire to improve. You know, there's the old saying that God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to let you stay the way that you are. Right. Uh, That we would say that self-acceptance doesn't mean self-improvement ends altogether. And just basically saying, yeah, that's the way I am is a way of saying, I'm not going to do anything about it. Yeah. When the Lord's saying, no, act, do, go, um, improve. That's what you were built to do. And there are some things, you know, that that we are just going to have to accept. So, for example, uh, it doesn't matter what I do. I'm not going to get taller. This is this is the height I am. That's how it is. Right. Yeah. And and there are certain things in my genes like, I, you know, that, that uh, I'm not going to change this element of my health or something like that. That's just how I am. Right. Or even, for example, I just can't sing. And I've tried lots of different things <laughs> to be able to sing better. And it it's just not working. So I've just had to come to the point where, like Elder Bednar, I can say, all right, well, that's I can be happy with I can be comfortable with that weakness, but there are certain weaknesses that I just can't allow myself to be comfortable with. You know, I can't allow I have to say it. Well, patience is something 
I can get better at because Christ will help me with that. And maybe one day Christ helps me sing. I don't know. But um, but he will help me with patience. He will help me with charity. You know, those kinds of things. Those things are the things that we should say, this this is not me. I've got a yeah. divine nature that's better than this. Yeah. And again, it's a, it's a fine line, right? Between right. accepting yourself the way you are and also saying, I could probably do better and be better, being acted upon and acting for yourself. And the wonderful way Lehi explains this is to actually introduce uh, the fall. So this yeah. is where this is this is where I really really love, <laughs> because he says some stuff about the fall here that I just think is so amazing and so profound. Uh, where he introduces this, so he says we can be enticed one direction or another, that's verse 16. And then he introduces uh, an angel of God, according to that which is written, had fallen from heaven, and he became a, a devil, having sought that which was evil before God. But now he's going to tie it back to Adam and Eve. And I, I want to mention one thing here really fast. Um, this is a discourse on the atonement, and he has done a great job teaching the atonement up to this point. Yeah. Um, Elder Bruce Hafen once gave a talk where he said, a friend walked up to him and said, I, I went to the temple, and what surprised me was that it didn't seem like they talked about the atonement in the temple, that mm. if Jesus Christ is central to our religion, they should talk about the life of Christ. But instead, you go to the temple, and it's all about Adam and Eve. And uh, Elder Hafen, you know, very, very wisely responded, the life of Christ is the story of giving the atonement. The life of Adam and Eve is the story of receiving the atonement. So what's taught in the temple is still the atonement. It's just the atonement yeah. from a different angle. It's yeah. the story of the first man and the first woman who accepted the atonement and were changed and altered by it. And boy, Adam and Eve, um, I, I hope I'm not speaking too broadly here, have taken kind of a beating mm. um, in, in the wider Christian world. They're seen as yeah. negative figures who made a terrible decision and there's this kind of longing to return to Eden when what Lehi does here in the next few verses really kind of helps us understand, hey, Eden might not be what you think it was. And Adam and Eve in leaving Eden um, weren't detouring the plan. They were forwarding the plan. They were, they were doing what God intended them to do. This is the doctrine of a fortunate fall, right? right. So instead of original sin, Latter-day Saints say fortunate fall, and it's a very optimistic way of seeing the world that is sort of transformative when it comes down to it. Yes. So um, let's add in some of the things that he teaches here. Uh, verse 19, after Adam and Eve had partaken of the forbidden fruit, they were driven out of the Garden of Eden to till the earth, and they have brought forth children, yea, even the family of the earth. But now if you jump down to verse 22, this is where Lehi, and he's either speaking from revelation given to him or from something that's in the brass plates that we currently don't have about conditions that exist in Eden. And when I teach this, I usually just put up a slide that says, was Eden paradise? And go through these two verses and then say, okay, tell me if this is good or if this is bad. <laughs> so verse 22, now if Adam had not transgressed, he would not have fallen, but he would have remained in the Garden of Eden. And then I just say to my class, is this good or bad? And with at least my students, the general consensus is, well, that's bad. Eden yeah. isn't unpleasant or anything, but to say you have to stay in one location 
and you can't go anywhere would be unpleasant over time. In fact, I taught this yesterday and I had a student go, that sounds like the pandemic. That sounds like <laughs> when we were all in quarantine and we couldn't go anywhere. And for the first day, oh, great. I get to wear sweatpants and hang around the house. But after a couple weeks, I mean, yeah. that kind of confinement really, really is suffocating. So, And, and even day, if Eden were as big as the whole earth, it's still a confinement of not going anywhere, right? Stagnation is suffocating. Yeah, yeah. That's the central thing he seems to be teaching is that Eden wasn't about progression. It was about stasis. It was yeah. everything. It's hammered home in the next part. Yeah, it, All things which were created must have remained in the same state in which they were after they were created, they would have remained forever and had no end. That's right. And so I, when I asked my student, good or bad? Um, bad, right? Yeah. No he, one can take that. No one yeah. can take that kind of stagnation. Yeah, it's it's stasis, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's not progression. So there's no change in Eden, uh, Lehi expresses here. Then he says, they would have had no children. And I ask, good or bad? And my college students always go, that's, bad when i do this with adults they usually pause for a second and go <laughs> and then most of them eventually say okay having kids really is great but it does make your life more complex and he's yeah. moving into the second part of the discourse he's introduced law he's introduced good and evil he, he's introduced opposites now he's saying this they would have remained in a state of innocence good or bad um bad yeah you know uh, my five-year-old is is very innocent. The other day, uh, she came in and said, hey, dad, my cheeks aren't rosy like my sister's. And I said, well, your sisters wear blush. And uh, she said, well, how can I get that look? And I said, well, I could slap your face. And she's so <laughs> innocent, she actually said, okay. <laughs> I realized that's adorable for a five-year-old. But if she yeah. stays in that state of innocence, she's going to get smacked in the face a yeah. couple times and get beat up. So ultimately, innocence... It's, it's not really either good or evil, but it might not be preferable because innocence denotes no progression. Sometimes right. you have to find out how bad things are before you can start to climb. And then he says this, having no joy, that's bad, for they knew no misery. That's good. Doing no good, that's bad, for they knew no sin. That's good. Uh, add it all up, and you kind of come to this conclusion that Eden wasn't paradise, what Lehi is describing here is um, what I call God's basement. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, it's kind of like uh, you, you and I have kids. We have college age kids. Uh, if they chose to live in our basement, nothing really bad is going to happen to them. And sometimes, as a parent, that's my impulse: just stay in the basement. Yeah. But nothing really good is going to happen either. Yeah. If they leave the basement, um, something really bad could happen. They could get into an accident, or they could get their heart broken. But really good things could happen too. And Adam and Eve were in this state where um, they weren't going to have anything terrible happen to them, but they weren't going to have anything great happen to them either. They were just kind of there. In fact, one question I'll sometimes ask my classes is, did they love each other? Like prior to the fall, did they know what love was? Mm. And I don't know um, if we can answer that fully, but it seems like if love is joyful and miserable, that they might not have fully yeah. been able to embrace their love for each other until the fall happened. Yeah, what, whatever it is, it was limited. Yeah. I mean, that's, again, that's the definition of Eden is limited um, yeah. in, in many ways. Whatever they could feel for each other was limited compared to what they would be able to feel. 
Yeah. And I mean, in the same way, I mean, I'll put it this way. Uh, I, I had the capacity for love before I was married and before I had children, but not the same capacity I have after. Yeah. It's got to be something along those lines, right? Yeah. And, and I mean, marriage is a good example because that, that is like the scariest decision you make in your life, right? Yeah. And, and it seriously increases the amount of joy that you have, but it can also increase the amount of misery you have. You're tying your, a, a lot of your happiness to another person. And then these other little people come along and your happiness is tied to them. So God, sometimes we, we talk about the Garden of Eden and the fact that God gave them two commandments. And the other thing Lehi is adding here is the two commandments were be fruitful and multiply, have children. The second was don't eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Lehi is basically saying they were going to break a commandment. Um, yeah. If they hadn't eaten the fruit, they wouldn't have been able to have children. When they chose to eat the fruit, they could have children. It seems like God's giving them contradictory commandments, and he's setting them up to fail. But I think in the context Lehi's giving here, he's not setting them up to fail. He's setting them up to choose. That's exactly right. And that's how Joseph Fielding Smith and and uh, John A. Woodsow and others, even as you get down into Dallin H. Oaks and Russell M. Nelson who talk about this, there, but but it's it, it, uh, that choice is most specifically, I think, said by Joseph Fielding Smith and others. But this idea, they are, God's explaining to them and giving them choice. Yeah, yeah, and 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 that's it. Um, I mean, Lehi's trying to address to his child why bad things happen, and if God had just basically kicked him out of the garden, we could blame all of our problems on God, right? Instead, God does what any good parent does. It's sort of a, I'm not going to force you, but I, but I need you to choose, right? This is the way Elder Holland um, uh, explains this in his book, Christ in the New Covenant. He said, Elohim, our heavenly father, certainly could not force innocent parties out of the garden and still be a just God. Adam and Eve, and we, knowingly and lovingly absolved God of the responsibility for the thorns and thistles of a fallen world that was personally chosen by us mm -hmm. and not capriciously imposed by him. So if he just throws us into the world with sin and sorrow and complexity and joy and happiness, we could blame him for our problems. But instead, like a good parent, he says, I'm going to explain to you the consequences, and then I'm going to need you to choose. And once you choose, you'll have to deal with those consequences. The consequences mm -hmm. when it came to the fall are both good and bad. But the point is, Adam and Eve chose this. And this is a way of saying to us, so did we. In pre-mortality, yeah. we had the plan explained to us. It was presented. Yeah. We chose to um, sustain the plan. Yeah. And in doing so, and to we follow chose Adam and Eve. Yeah, yeah. And to follow Adam and Eve. We knew what they would do. Yeah, I, I agree. And... And uh, so, and even when, when we say like, uh, this is, brings about good and bad, but the bad is for our good. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That you can't know righteousness without knowing sin. You can't know joy without knowing misery. Uh, and Lehi ends on a positive note, verse 25, most, one of the most profound verses in scripture. Yeah. Right? It's, it's one of the ones I, I'd say there are like maybe three verses that change the way you look at every other verse in scripture. And, and I think that Moses uh, 129 and John 316, I think are the other two, but this one is necessary if you're going to understand everything else. Yeah. Adam fell that men might be and men are that they might have joy. The purpose of life right there mm -hmm. um, wrapped up in one simple little couplet. 
Um, now, again, he doesn't just leave it hanging there. He immediately follows up with exactly what he's supposed to say. And the Messiah cometh, this is verse 26, in the fullness of time, that he may redeem the children of men from the fall. And because they are free, they are because they are redeemed from the fall, they have become free, knowing good and evil, to act for themselves and not to be acted upon, save it be by the punishment of the law at the great and last day, according to the commandments which God hath given. So, he, he, he doesn't skimp on the important part of the story, which is the fall isn't a story about the fall. It's not about eating fruit. It's about choosing to live. It's about choosing to love. I mean, ultimately, what Adam and Eve decided to do was love each other. And the fruit, uh, whether that's literal or metaphorical, is really the symbol of that choice. It completely flips the narrative presented um by Christianity, which is that the fall was a bad thing, to saying, no, the fall was a good thing. And even though it brought some unpleasantness into the world, the Savior's mission is going to eventually remove the unpleasantness to those that accept him and allow us to retain the experience we have so we can be righteous, but also be experienced. We have to know good and evil if we're going to have the kind of empathy that we have to have to eventually do the sort of work that God himself does. Yeah, very good. Very, very good. And, and, and it's so powerful. And that, again, that, that circles back around on this idea of then you could, knowing this, you can choose to act or be acted upon, right? Mm -hmm. If you know what the purpose is, why there was a fall. Uh, and, and we see that with Adam and Eve, they chose to act. The stasis is being acted upon. Yeah could choose yeah. the stasis stay in god's presence never leave it and have that stasis but but uh well i mean that's not acting and thus things stay the same right but that's in a way being acted upon but they choose to act and thus we have the opportunity to choose to act but when we it's inevitable that if we choose to break the commandment that we will be acted upon Mm -hmm. um, and it's only in choosing to obey that we have the choice to act, right? And that's mm -hmm. uh, now that doesn't mean that you can avoid all bad things. And clearly, that's not the point of life. But uh, it, it is important to recognize uh, that joy is something that will come from our choices. That doesn't mean that every moment will be joyful or there'll be no sorrow. Obviously, not according to Lehi. Mm -hmm. But uh, it, it is what we if we're going to experience it we have to make the choices that lead there yeah central message verse 27 men are free according to the flesh and all things are given them which are expedient unto men you're you're free to choose and everything's been given to you so that you can have the freedom to choose yeah. they're free to choose liberty and eternal life through the great mediator of all men or to choose captivity and death according to the captivity and power of the devil for he seeketh that all men might be miserable like unto himself. So uh, if he's talking to Jacob, he's basically saying, Jacob, I know you've had a tough life, but you're free to choose the type of life that you have. If he's talking to Laman and Lemuel, he's saying, you guys have made some bad decisions, but you still have the freedom to choose not to do that. If he's talking to Nephi, he's saying, hey, you've made some great decisions. Continue to make those good decisions, and you'll be on the road to uh, liberty and eternal life. But again, it, it comes back to this central teaching, uh, which uh, another one of those scriptures, carry that um, 
completely changes the way you see everything. Uh, Moses chapter four, where the fall is presented, but with this four verse prologue, right? That sets yeah. the conditions for the fall. And it talks about pre-mortality. And then it says Satan sought to destroy the agency of man, that that's his objective. And when you start to look at, hey, what are the things that limit my agency, my power to choose? And what are the things that expand my agency? Then life does become a, a little bit more straightforward. You're just choosing between things that allow you greater freedom and things that allow you lesser freedom. But it does take a little imagination to say, what are the consequences of that? Yeah, Because and that I, old I, phrase, you're free, you're free to make your choices, but you're not free to choose the consequences of your choices, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think what you're talking about kind of brings us back to something you were talking about earlier. I mean, it is still the case. It wasn't just Satan sought in the past to destroy the agency of man. He is still seeking to destroy that. But he's so clever, as, as you were talking about earlier, in in hiding that where he paints it as if, no, 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 you you keep these commandments. You don't have choice. Disobey them. That's when you really have choice, which is exactly the opposite of the truth. He is seeking to destroy your agency. And sometimes we, we need all of us to stop and remember that. Giving in to my carnal nature, my fallen nature, following, that's what Satan wants me to do. Doing anything Satan wants me to do. It may feel like it's giving me freedom, but it is not. It's taking away my agency so that we get to verse 29, which I can kind of see him like looking at, at uh, Jacob, but out of the corner of his eye, he's addressing Laman and Lemuel. And not choose eternal death according to the will of the flesh, and the evil which is therein, which giveth the spirit of the devil power to captivate, to bring you down to hell. That's where you lose that agency that you're talking about, right? That he may yeah. reign over you on, in his own kingdom. Uh, but he's so clever, and the world around us is so clever at telling us, no, 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 you need to give people these choices. Let them have these. Well, we do need to let them have these choices. But when they make those choices, they don't lead to the freedom that, that Satan and the world are, are trying to convince us they, they will they lead to the misery and the captivity. Yeah. I mean, in the end, God is being honest with us and saying, yeah. this will make you happy, but you might have to go through some unpleasant things to get to that happiness. And Satan is just saying, yeah, this will make you happy and there's no consequences. He's lying yeah. about the consequences that exist there. And God did give us the imaginative capacity to... Uh, visualize what would happen if we make a choice so that we don't have to learn from experience. Whether you learn from experience or you're able to just foresee or you just listen to the prophets, um, either way, eventually you're going to get to where you're going. And Lehi just wants people to know, you know what, you do have a choice. Don't, don't, don't sit there and be a victim of your circumstances. Take control of your circumstances. Do what you can and then trust that Christ will make up the difference and you are going to get to where you need to go. Uh, and I'm so glad you keep bringing that back in, you know, this idea of Christ. There were some times where I meant to say something like this, and then I, I, I forgot and didn't. But yeah, yeah, they, like when we're condemned by the law, or our fallen nature, all of this, I, I mean, in the end, it is Christ that makes us free. Yeah. We yeah. have, the, and that's one of the things, as you said, that, that uh, Lehi is trying to convince us of. We desperately need Christ. Uh, and it's, Thank literally, literally thank God that he sent Christ. Yeah. And I'm I'm doing it because Lehi's doing it, right? Like he's the master of yeah. here's a principle. Let's tie it back to Christ. Let's talk about law. Now let's talk about the Messiah. Let's talk about the fall. Now let's talk about 
the the Messiah. Let's talk about agency, but let's tie it back to the great mediator. Like he is so good yeah. at keeping the central thread of the discourse, which is all this is going to be fixed when the Messiah comes. And you don't have to wait. You can choose right now to follow the Messiah and receive the benefits of his atoning sacrifice if you choose. If you choose. But it's got to be your choice. Uh, again, going back to that principle of the fall of if God just made the decisions for us, our decisions become meaningless. God doesn't want a bunch of mindless automatons that just do what he tells them to do. God wants us to choose because we learn, know, and see that the road he's pointed out for us really is the better road. Amen. What a what a wonderful way to summarize. That's that's beautiful and and powerful, Casey. Thank you for that. That's that's wonderful stuff. And uh, maybe we'll just uh, encourage our audience. Uh, well, first of all, a couple of things. Uh, one, uh, if, if we, I did a workshop on the Book of Mormon a while ago, and we're recording that, making it available. It should be coming uh, available, I think, the same time that this is on our uh, Patreon website, or you can go to Tsar. That's the scriptures are real. T-S-A-R, Tsar.website. Uh, and uh, you can see the the workshop where we uh, had a, a an hour and a half, I think, where we kind of talked about uh, what the Book of Mormon teaches us about the fall. And uh, and I think that that might be a good supplement for those who'd like to go there. Um, and we'll also uh, encourage our audience that if this has been useful to share it with someone, uh, if there's something in there that you found meaningful, share it uh, either by just telling them word of mouth, uh, you know, whatever way you text, whatever else. Also do the shares that you can do online, you know, and likes and downloads and rates and reviews and all those things, because that helps us get more, give more people the opportunity to be edified, which we hope is what happens from this. Uh, and that you'll you'll grab your friends and you'll go into the scriptures with them. Rather than just talking about this, go into the scriptures with them and say, let's look at some of these things I heard. Let's look at these together in the scriptures. So we hope that you'll get into the scriptures. So uh, please do that, our, our audience, and give us that feedback we talked about. And I want to remind you that that next week, it's going to be a great week. I think we have this lined up that it, it's going to happen this way, uh, that we're going to have both John Tanner and Patrick Mason uh, come and talk to us about Second uh, Nephi 4. So that should be a lot of fun uh, for stuff. yeah for next week. So. Uh, any, uh, any last uh, testimony, advice, teachings, anything else you'd like to give us as we end here, Casey? Just thank you, Carrie, for letting me teach the Book of Mormon. I love the Book of Mormon. It is so yeah. profound and so beautiful. And I love all the scriptures, but if I'm being honest, the Book of Mormon is the book that brought me to Christ. And so anytime I get a chance to teach it, I'm just over the moon because I love this book. Yeah, I agree. And, and the way you showed us how Lehi keeps bringing us to Christ. I think we could do that with every Book of Mormon author, but you did it masterfully here, and that's part of why there's so much power, because the Book of Mormon really is designed to bring us to Christ so that he can fulfill the covenant and bring us to the Father. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, thank you, Casey, and uh, we will uh, see our audience next week. <laughs>